Good morning. This is kind of a hard day to preach, because uh, you can't sing this day right, you can't preach this day right, you can't read it right, you can't pray it right, it's just big. Uh, so, I just welcome you to try to wrap the whole day together as we approach uh, the Lord's resurrection. We're going to be in Luke, the 24th chapter this morning, uh, and you can begin to open there if you would, but before we read, I kind of want to take, I want to hijack the first verse, and, uh, and, and, and at least reflect on it a little bit, as it maybe sets the tone for how we, how we go into the story. So, Luke 24, verse 1, talks about some, some of the women um, who had been following Jesus, how they, they go on the early in the morning to uh, anoint his body with spices and prepare him for burial. And on their way there, they approach an empty tomb. Now, it says in, in the Bible, it says that they leave at first light. And if you read the Gospel of Mark, by the way, the resurrection account is in every Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you read the account of Mark, you know that these women actually prepared these spices and ointments the night before. So the clear impression you're given is that they wanted to set out the moment they possibly could to dress the body of our Lord and Savior. And so you can think that they are waiting for just enough sunlight so they could could walk out through the gardens and get to the area where there were tombs. Just enough light to see. And what I always find amazing is they get there and he's already gone. It isn't like they showed up at noon. It isn't like they grabbed lunch. And they showed up in the middle of the afternoon on Sunday. They left at first light, and they're late. And that gets me thinking, how long was Jesus actually dead? We say three days, because we're talking calendar days. He died on Friday, and he was raised to new life, or raised to life on Sunday. But he wasn't really dead for three days. In fact, we know that on Friday, he passed away immediately before the Sabbath. In fact, remember they were breaking the legs of the prisoners, of the people on the cross, and they pierced his side because it was getting late. They didn't want these bodies on the cross at Sabbath because then there would be all these other implications. And so he passed away just in time to get his body into the tomb for Sabbath. And he he rises to new life the first light the morning after the Sabbath is over. And when I think of that, I think of this. On the seventh day, the Lord rested. That's what I think of. That the Lord labored for six days, and on the seventh day, He rested. That His time in the tomb, God is enjoying His Sabbath rest from all of His labor. It says on the cross that it's finished, it's done, and our Christ rests on His Sabbath We speak of Sunday as the first day. Sunday is the first day, and that's true. It is the first day. The early church, however, talked about this particular Sunday. They had a special name for it. They called it the eighth day. Easter Sunday to them is the eighth day. In fact, they say eight is the number of Christ. Because for them, this story is not over till Sunday. And so we are, in in a very unique way, eighth-day Christians. That's why we worship on Sundays, because when Christ rests in the tomb, we're still waiting for something. 
It isn't over. We're waiting for, well, what's next? Well, what's next? And that doesn't happen until the eighth day. Will you please pray with me? Almighty God, on this eighth day, we come before you as your children to tell you what you already know, Lord, that your Son is risen. Father, we worship you for your love, for sending your Son. We praise and worship your Son for his gift of his life on the cross, Lord. And Father, this day is a celebration where we remark that you are risen, you are risen indeed, and that because of that, our life is full of hope. And Lord, this morning, if there are those in the room who are hearing the story for the first time, or Father, if your Spirit is working in them so that they really hear this story for the first time, Lord, I pray that you would move and work. We praise this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Luke 24. Over the course of the week in preparation for this uh, message, I had a lot of ideas, and I was running them over, running them over, over with my wife, because she's, she's very helpful, in fact. All of the good stuff you hear is her fault. And uh, I, originally, I originally was not even going to read a resurrection account, and then she's the one who said to me, just read the story. Read the story, and it just seemed right. When it came out of her mouth, it seemed right. It meant more work, but it seemed right. So, so we're going to read the story, and then we're going we're to talk about why is the story significant. Because you can read stories. It's just a story if we don't know what its significance is. So that's what we're doing this morning. I'm going to be reading 24, 1 to 12, but we'll stop here at verse 8. On the first day of the week, Very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day raised again. Then they remembered his words. Well, these ladies who come to the tomb, they get there, the stone's rolled away, there's an empty tomb, and they're confused. They approach this empty tomb and they don't know what to do with it. They don't know what what has happened. Certainly, we're under the impression that the first thing that jumps to their mind is not that Jesus Christ has been resurrected from the dead. And in the way we approach the scriptures today, I would like to at least put out there that many of us here, some of you may be dealing with the empty tomb in the very same way, that you may whether or not you're a believer or maybe you're an earlier, a young believer or a seeker, but you don't know what to do with the empty tomb. You don't know why it's significant. You know, we, these people talk about it a lot, but you don't know why, why we talk about it so much. I would say you're in good company, for one. And I would say that the church in, at large 
I think, despite the fact that we know the right answers, oftentimes doesn't know what to do with the empty tomb. I'm going to suggest this morning that while many of us know and believe in our minds that Jesus Christ is resurrected, that we practically do not live as though he's resurrected. In fact, I think there's times when we are like these women here. We love Jesus. We worship Christ. We believe in the things he's done. We believe in why he's came, come to earth. We, we desire to honor him and respect him. But we do it in the way that the women do, by bringing spices and ointments to his gravesite rather than worshiping a living Christ. But this is the place. This is the place in Scripture where we're forced to deal with these questions of who is Jesus really? Is he a teacher? Is he just a teacher? Is he just a man? Is he a good man? Is he kind of a Confucian scholar? Is he some great rabbi? What is he? This is, this is where, if you're wondering, why is this story significant? Is because you cannot leave the empty tomb without approaching and staring these questions in the face. And these women, as they are dealing with this, they're met by these angels. Now, there's, there's irony here if you think about it for a second. These two angels appear like lightning, and they appear before the women, and the women, in fearful trembling, they fall to the ground, and they place their face against the ground. Now, what I think is ironic about that is all of these women knew Jesus Christ. They're followers of Jesus who, by the way, is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Jesus Christ created the angels whom they're falling before. These women know Jesus. They stared Jesus face to face. They spoke with Jesus. They certainly would consider themselves affectionate friends of Christ. They're the ones at the first light of dawn to go out and to make sure that his body is prepared for burial. All of these things are happening, and yet when his angels show up, mere messengers of the Lord... Mere messengers. Who knows if they even have names? Maybe it's angel 933 and angel 934. When these mere angels show up, they fall on their face and swoon. Who did they think they were with all that time? You know what I like to imagine? I like to imagine that this is happening and Jesus steps out from behind a bush. The angels turn around. They say Jesus and they fall to their feet and tremble. Because that's the image we have in heaven. The image we have in heaven is all creation wailing and trembling worship before Jesus Christ, the resurrected Son of God. And here these women are. They're so close to the Christ. They know Him so well, and they're so affectionately comfortable with Him. But then they see His mere messengers, and they stumble over themselves in fear for all. And I say, that is a sign that they have not realized who Jesus really is. To him, to them, he's a man. He's a great man. He's a wonderful man. He's a powerful man. But he's a man. I took a cursory search of the New Testament scriptures. I couldn't find another time where a Christian falls in trembling before an angel. I thought that was interesting. I could be wrong. We worship a resurrected Christ. Well, the angels come and they deliver this message. They say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Don't you remember what he said about himself? 
He told you all about himself. He said this very thing, that he'd have to be handed over and crucified, and that he'd be raised again on the third day. And it's through this remembrance that they're brought to mind the significance of the moment right now. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to take a brief second to remind ourselves of the theological significance of this. Why is this important? Why can't we just end at the crucifixion? That's where most of our songs end, isn't it? Why can't we just end there? We're going to talk a bit about why we need to remember the resurrection, why we celebrate the resurrection with so much hope and glory. And here's the reason. There's a lot of thousands of pages written on it. I've boiled it down to one idea. Because a risen Christ demonstrates God's power over death. That's why. A risen Christ demonstrates God's power over death. Now this, this is hard, I think, for humans to appreciate because death has power over us. So we feel. Death looms over us in, in a way like a cloud. The older you get, the more, the more aware you are that you're mortal, that death is coming, and that if you're going to do anything significant in life, you better get started. Because by the time you notice you're dying, you're already on the way down. We're all going to die. For some of us, death doesn't simply loom. It lords over us. It drives us. You do things to avoid death, or to postpone death, or to choose your death, or to shape it. Or you live your life as though this is it. You live your life as though this, you got to get all your pleasure and joy and now, all your significance, all of it matters right now because you're going to die and that'll be the end of it. And this is where I think. I think that even the church practically does not sometimes worship a resurrected Christ. Because we behave with some of the same fears as one who has not conquered death. But Jesus Christ has conquered death. He, is, he has demonstrated his power over death. And to him, death is not a big thing. It's a huge thing to us. It's massive. We, can't, we have to walk through it. We can't avoid it. To Jesus Christ, to the Lord, death is a small thing. The universe is not a dualistic universe of death and life. That's not the universe at all. God doesn't live in, in one half of the universe and celebrate life while the other side lives in a half of the universe and celebrates death. That's not at all the case. In fact, when God made creation and when he created mankind, death was not even part of the plan. We weren't even designed to die. We were designed as immortal, infinite beings. It was through our sin that God, as a consequence, introduced death. And death is not even a creation. It's not an idea. God didn't, God didn't mold death. Death in itself is a decreation, you might think. It isn't something. It's nothing. When God created animals and mankind, what did he do? He molded them out of the dirt, and then he says this, the scriptures. The scriptures say he breathed the breath of life in us. And we became alive. That's creation. That's something. Death is simply God withdrawing the breath of life. Taking it back. Separating us from the life he gives. That's what death is. Death, which is big for us, it's nothing for God. It's in his hand. He could snap his fingers and have a universe without death. 
Death has been given to mankind as a physical manifestation of separation from God. In a dark way, it's a gift to draw us to him. And Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, has demonstrated his power over death and his power over sin. Christ took all of our sins with him into death. He who was without sin was a sufficient sacrifice and God raised him to new life because Christ is divine, because he's perfect, because he's eternal, because he's immutable, because he's infinite, because he's all-knowing and all-powerful. Jesus Christ is God. And at the empty tomb, when we face the resurrection head-on, we walk away with this high theology, this very high theology that Jesus Christ is God, that God is eternal, he's infinite, he's all-powerful, and he has dominion over death. That's the high theology of the resurrection. If you don't have that, you cannot worship or understand Jesus Christ rightly. You, you, can, you can try to worship Jesus Christ. You can admire Christ. You can follow Christ. But you cannot do it rightly if he is not resurrected. Because you're not worshiping God then. You're worshiping a man. You're worshiping a good man. You're worshiping a kind man. You're worshiping a knowledgeable man. But you're worshiping a man. We worship the risen Lord. It's in this high theology that big terms show up. Justification, regeneration, sanctification. These ideas all come from an eternal, resurrected Jesus Christ. This is what the resurrection tells us about Christ. This is why it is significant. In a high-minded way, this is why it is significant. Let's see how it's practically significant. Let's keep reading. Because we can have all the right answers. How is it practically significant? Verse 9. Speaking of the women, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these, to the ele- all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. I think this room, this room with the apostles and the others that the women enter into, is a room that expresses to me kind of the different sides of the church. Different sides of this community that generally says, this broad community that calls itself spiritual, that pursues God. There is on one far side a group that says that the idea of the resurrection is nonsense. It's nonsense. They can be fans of Jesus Christ and they'll say it's nonsense. The apostles loved Jesus Christ, and what do they say? They say it's nonsense. I think the enemy, the enemy works as hard as he can to make this story look nonsensical. 
This is, this is the sole place, this is the linchpin of the faith. And I think Satan, in all of his efforts, can be invested to keep this account of the resurrection of Christ to appear as though it is nonsense. It has to be nonsense, or Satan is in, there's serious problems here. If it's nonsense, if the resurrection of Christ is nonsense, then you and I are lost to death. There's no hope. There's no hope. Because just because we claim that the resurrection of Christ is nonsense doesn't mean that anything else before it is nonsense. If Christ isn't resurrected, it doesn't mean that we aren't sinful. The two have nothing to do with each other. Our sinfulness exists independent of Christ's resurrection. So if Christ has not been resurrected, we still are in our sin. And we still are then without hope. And Satan, I think, would have us be this way. I think he would have us in a place where we follow a God who gives us no hope. Because then we're locked away in a room. We're fearful. We're doubting. And we're totally ineffectual for God. And I think there's parts of the church, there's parts of, not just of the church, but of every Christian, every single Christian here, who does not practically appreciate the resurrection of Christ the way they ought to. Who is in dire need to remember what's really happening here, the real significance of the resurrection of Christ. How much time do you spend managing your death? Your health? Your welfare? Your house? How hard do you labor to postpone your death or to not think about your death even though you're overthinking about it? I think this entire healthcare theme of the year You know what it preaches to me? It preaches to me that America is infatuated and obsessed with its own death. Life insurance. That's about death. Health insurance. It's about death. Retirement. It's about death. The medical industry is about death. And I'm not saying these things are wrong. I'm saying, how do we idolize these things? Where, where is the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in your life on these things? Is there any place for fear? Is there any possibility that your fear is godly founded? Jesus Christ is risen. Jesus Christ is risen. Where, O oh death, is your sting, writes Paul. And yet it haunts us. I think we, we believe the high theology. I think we can write the answers. I think we know all of these things. I think when they descend into our soul, they don't always work themselves out in the same practical way that would please God. Our lives don't preach a resurrected Christ like maybe we would say it if we had just to tell somebody. But our lives don't preach it. We, we're, we succumb to the same fears as the God-hater. We succumb to the same fears as the atheist or or the hedonist, all of those things affect us. And when they do, we are not preaching a resurrected Christ. A resurrected Christ calls us to live life to the fullest, not fearing death. 
A resurrected Christ lives us to live holy lives without fearing judgment for our sins. How many of you wrestle to be righteous, exhaust yourself trying to be righteous, trying to conquer a sin, frustrated with why you can't be better? I say that is denying the resurrection of Christ. If Christ is resurrected, your sin has no power. If Christ is resurrected, you have not earned your salvation. If Christ's resurrection is nonsense, it's hopeless. And I think this is one side. I think this is one side of every believer, one side of the church, that, that we trend. We, we trend. If we don't remember the significance of Christ's resurrection, we fall into these fears, into this, this race to be righteous, into this practical life that does not preach the resurrection of Christ. But then there is this other person, right? Who is this? Verse 12. Peter. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. So this is Sunday morning. The last time Peter saw Christ, Jesus Christ was looking straight down his soul as the rooster was crowing. That's the last time Peter saw Christ. Peter had just finished denying Jesus Christ for the third time. And he looks up, and Jesus Christ across the way looks right at him, and that is the last thing he sees. And he goes and he wails and he weeps. If Jesus Christ is not resurrected, Peter has nothing to do but wail and weep. That's all we have. We are without hope. How do we know if Jesus Christ is not resurrected? How do we know that he was sufficient sacrifice for our sins? Has that been demonstrated? Can we actually expect as humans to, after we die, be resurrected to new life and be with the Lord if Jesus Christ did not do that? If we have not, if Christ hasn't experienced resurrection, how can we possibly hope for resurrection? How can the church, how can the church even function without the resurrection of Christ? Where is the hope? There's no hope at all in the church. That's why I think Peter runs. I think Peter sees this hope. You know, 1 Corinthians 13, one of the sentences that's been my favorite about love is love always hopes. It always hopes. And I feel that this isn't Peter. This hope of, I don't know what's happening, but what if? The fact that he didn't even wait for the conversation in. He runs to the gravesite hoping. By the way, he's not alone. John the Apostle's with him. They run to the tomb to find out what happened. They have this hope, and this hope is only found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, as Christians, I don't know if we have a perfect balance between the crucifixion and the resurrection. I think we have a very keen understanding of the crucifixion, and we sing about it a lot, we talk about it a lot, we identify with it a lot, we have songs like the old rugged cross, at the foot of the cross, lead me to the cross, we don't have the old rugged tomb, nobody's singing those, lead me to the tomb, nobody's singing that, 
And I've wondered, why, why, why when it comes to Easter, do we, we have about four songs? We have about 400 for the crucifixion. And I think it's this. It's we identify with the crucifixion. We identify with it. We see God's love for us that he gave his only son who for our sins died on the cross. We can identify with that loving sacrificial gift. It's real. It matters. We feel our sin. And we're thankful that Christ took it on him. But the hope that is in Christ comes from the resurrection. The crucifixion is a gift. The hope is from the resurrection. If Christ is not resurrected, you are still in your sins and you and me, all of us, are to be pitted among men. He's risen. We have hope because He's risen. We have trust. We have courage because He's risen. There's no place for fear with a risen Christ. There's no place. There's no possible way that your fear is godly because Christ is risen. I pray that we would run like Peter to a resurrected Christ.